0: This morning, we are going to be continuing our series called The Jesus Lifestyle, in which we've been going through the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are a series of eight statements at the beginning of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapters 5 through 7. These eight statements follow a simple pattern Jesus names a group of people normally thought to be unfortunate and pronounces them to be blessed. So I'm going to begin by reading from the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So dear Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open up your word to us today. We ask, Lord, that you would um, help us to see these Beatitudes in a new way today. Help us to hear from you. Today's word, for this time. Father, give me your spirit as I share, and give us all your spirit as we listen. Speak to us. Spirit, you are welcome here. Come and fill us. In Jesus' name, amen. So these eight statements follow a simple pattern. Jesus names a group of people normally thought to be unfortunate, and he pronounces them blessed. The Beatitudes aren't meant to be taken as advice about how we should live. He's not saying, go home and try to be poor in spirit, or try really hard to mourn more. No, Jesus is announcing good news. He's announcing that because the kingdom of God has come, people who were normally thought to be unfortunate are actually blessed. In the normal way the world works, plenty of people who mourn aren't comforted. The meek don't inherit the earth, and people can go their whole lives and never see true justice. But Jesus is announcing good news. Because Jesus has come, the kingdom has come, and wherever the kingdom comes, there is good news. The poor in spirit will receive the kingdom, the people who mourn will be comforted, the meek will inherit the earth, and so on. Jesus is announcing the gospel, the good news. At Daybreak, we're trying to look at these Beatitudes to take in what it means to live in light of the good news of the kingdom. In the world, the rich are blessed. The handsome or the beautiful are blessed. The intelligent are blessed. The famous are blessed. What does it mean to live for a kingdom where the poor in spirit the mourners, the meek, the merciful, and the peacemakers are actually the ones who are blessed. There's a difference there between what the world sees as blessed and what Jesus is saying are the blessed people in the kingdom. How do we live in that dynamic? How do we live as a church that is counter to the culture of our world? What does a Jesus lifestyle look like? Because Jesus was the most countercultural one of all. So we're going to be looking at the third beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. I think this may be the beatitude that we understand the least, and the difficulty all centers around the word meek. Americans don't like the word meek. It's kind of like that word moist. We just don't like the word. Meekness is not really in our American DNA. We like tough guy heroes. We like Patrick Henry. Give me liberty or give me death. We like Iron Man and Wolverine from the Marvel Universe. Tom Brady, or if you don't like him, Peyton Manning. We like Muhammad Ali, who was the greatest, or even General Patton, who beat the Nazis all over North Africa. The word meek puts a bad taste in our mouth. Meek makes us think about the small kid that got pushed around on the playground. So I looked up the definition for the word meek, and I think I know why there is some confusion. Miriam Webster defines the word meek in two different ways. The first definition is enduring injury with patience and without resentment. Enduring injury without patience and without resentment. The second definition is deficient in spirit and courage. And I think we can see the problem. Can we not Because most people, when they hear the word meek, think about the second definition, deficient in spirit and courage. But that can't be what Jesus is talking about here. Later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus describes himself as meek. In Matthew 11, verse 29, Jesus says this, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle. And that's the word meek there. Same word in meek as in our passage. He's gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. So Jesus describes himself as meek. And Jesus is many things, but he is certainly not deficient in spirit or courage. So no, I think the first definition gets us much closer to what Jesus is talking about here in this beatitude. Enduring injury with patience, and without resentment. Meekness is also not about being a doormat. Jesus had no problem standing up for the woman accused of adultery. He was not in the least bit embarrassed to hang out with Matthew or Zacchaeus, people who normally would be rejected. And even about his crucifixion, he said, No one takes my life from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. These aren't the words and actions of a doormat. So as my good friend Greg West says, meekness is not weakness. So I've come up with my own definition. I spent quite a bit of time on it, and um, you may not like it, but I I put it out as a a definition of meekness, as I, I think Jesus means it in this passage. So here's my version. Meekness is patiently enduring hardship and injury without resentment so that God's will may be done on the earth. I'm going to say it again. Meekness is patiently enduring hardship and injury without resentment so that God's will may be done on the earth. This isn't weakness. This is hard and I believe this is the part of what it means to live a Jesus lifestyle. This is God's call for us as individuals and as a community of Daybreak Church. We are to be a community that is marked by meekness. So the word that Matthew uses for the word weak, I'm sorry, for the word meek in this beatitude is praus. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but in Jesus' day there was a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was widely used. Everyone in the early Christian church would have been very familiar with this Greek version of the Old Testament. And in the book of Numbers, Moses is described in this way. This is in Numbers 12. Now the man Moses was very meek and that's this word praus, above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. So what's going on in Numbers? Why was Moses described as meek? Numbers 12 describes a quarrel that broke out between Moses and his older brother Aaron and his older sister Miriam. Now, I have two older brothers, and so I'm already sympathetic to Moses on this one, just on principle. The passage says that Miriam and Aaron began to talk about Moses because of his Cushite wife. Now, Cush, we believe, is the region of Ethiopia. So we're not really sure why this Cushite woman was so offensive to them. It's possible that there was a racial issue here. We're not really sure. But either way, what is really going on is a challenge to Moses' authority. They ask, has the Lord only spoken to Moses? Hasn't he also spoken to us? So it's at this point that Moses is described as very meek, more meek than anyone else upon the face of the earth. Why? Because even though Moses is being challenged, he overlooks the offense. Moses doesn't do or say anything to defend himself. Who defends Moses? God does. Moses is meek because he allows God to defend him. Moses endures the injury from his siblings. That's why he's meek. God eventually strikes Miriam with leprosy for seven days, and Moses even prays for Miriam so that her skin can be restored. This is meekness. This is enduring injury with patience and without resentment. Jesus also endured injury with patience and without resentment. What injury did Jesus endure? Jesus' view of the world was different from everyone else right from the start. Do you remember when Jesus was 12 and his family lost him? He was in the temple and he said, Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And then there were these times when Jesus is amazed at the lack of faith of those around him. For Jesus, when he came to the earth, he lived in this place of faith and faithfulness to his father that was a hundred percent complete. And so when he encountered faithlessness and those around him, it came as a shock to him. So Jesus, right from the start, is walking in a place and among a people who have a different way of looking at the world than him. Jesus lives and acts as the rightful king and ruler of the world. He knows he's the Messiah, and he knows his identity as the Son of God. But the world doesn't know this, and the world rejects him. John chapter 1, verse 11 says this, He came to that which was his own, and his own people did not receive him. His own family rejected him. His hometown of Nazareth didn't believe him, saying, aren't you the carpenter's son? He was called crazy, demon-possessed. He was constantly challenged by the religious leaders. Jesus had to endure the injury of unbelief, even though he demonstrated who he was time and again. He healed people. He raised the dead, controlled the weather, multiplied food, walked on water. And at the end of this, people were saying, maybe he's a prophet, maybe he's a good teacher. They couldn't quite bring themselves to see who he truly was, the Son of God. And so his own people didn't receive him. But Jesus was meek. He didn't count these injuries against the people. He was patient. He was loving. He looked over the offenses for the sake of love. He was meek. So nowhere was Jesus more offended and injured than he was during his passion. He comes into the city of Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, and Matthew says this about him, quoting the prophet Zechariah, Say to daughter Zion, See, your king comes to you, gentle, and that word is the same word, meek, again. Meek, and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus was meek, coming into the city. And when the hosannas were silent, and palm branches were put away, he was meek when he was arrested. He was meek before the Jewish council, Meek before Pilate, he was meek before the Roman soldiers when they spit on him and put a crown of thorns on his head and mocked him and rolled dice for his clothes. He patiently endured hardship and injury without resentment so that God's will may be done on the earth. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. So you see, meekness isn't weakness. Meekness is a tough business. Richard Allen was born into slavery on Valentine's Day in seventeen sixty in the county of Delaware. I'm sorry, in the colony of Delaware. When he was a child, Allen and his family were sold to a man named Stokely Sturgis, who had a plantation. Because of financial problems, Sturgis sold away Richard's mother and two of his five siblings. Alan and his older brother and sister remained with Sturgis, and they started attending meetings of the local Methodist society, which was welcoming to enslaved and free black people. They were encouraged by their owner, Sturgis, to attend the meetings, even though Sturgis himself was not a Christian. Allen started sharing his newfound faith with other slaves. And other slave owners began to be upset at him and his owner, Sturgis. The other slave owners were afraid that if the gospel were shared with slaves, then they wouldn't work as hard. So Richard Allen and his brother redoubled their labor for Sturgis so that no one could say that enslaved people did not do well because of their Christian faith. Eventually, Sturgis himself was converted to Christ and was soon convinced that slavery was wrong. He gave his slaves an opportunity to buy their freedom. Allen worked extra hours to earn money. He taught himself to read and write and bought his freedom in 1780 at the age of 20. I'm not finished with Alan's story yet, but just so we're clear, Alan redoubled his labor for the man who sold his mother and siblings away so that the name of Christ would not be discredited. That is meekness. Amen. In 1781, Alan began traveling the Methodist preaching circuits in Delaware and surrounding states. Alan was a popular preacher, more popular than many of the white preachers he worked with. Word got around about how good of a preacher and leader he was, and people would say, Oh, is is Brother Alan preaching? I want to be there. Even more so than some of the white evangelists and preachers who were traveling at that time. Prominent Methodist leaders, including Francis Asbury, made sure that Allen had places to preach. In 1786, Allen moved to Philadelphia and worked at a Methodist church there. Allen was an effective leader and minister, and many were drawn to his early morning prayer meetings. He was eventually ordained as a deacon by Francis Asbury in 1799 but he was never able to overcome the racial disunity within the Methodist church. It seemed that some Methodists had a principle of equality for all races, but in practice, some insisted on segregation. So for Francis Asbury to ordain Allen in 1799, a former slave, this is really remarkable. For the early Methodist leaders to promote Alan and his ministry and to set him up as a leader was a statement of their belief in the equality of all races and the truth of the gospel that liberates all people. But it was also clear that the Methodists hadn't fully realized the implications of what they the principles that they believed in. And so there remained this separation, this segregation in their congregations. And so there were places where the black uh, congregants could worship and pray and places where the white congregants could worship and pray. At one point, Alan was asked to leave a prayer meeting because he was praying by accident in an area in the church that was designated for white congregants only. Throughout this process, Allen was being promoted as a leader, but also having to confront the racial practices within the Methodist organization. Eventually, Allen started a breakaway denomination for Black Methodists, the African Methodist Episcopal Church, or AME. The first AME church in Philadelphia had a membership of over 1,000 people, And today, there are over 6,000 AME churches around the world with over 2 million members. Allen was a significant leader in the early Methodist movement, and his story is a part of our shared heritage as Methodists and Wesleyans. If there's a Mount Rushmore of the most prominent and significant early Methodist leaders, surely Richard Allen belongs there. Alan's effectiveness was tied to his meekness. At any point, he could have let his offense at all the wrongs that were done to him get in the way. He had every right to be angry and frustrated, but he set aside the offense so that God's will could be done in his life. He could have said, Why was I born? As a slave, he could have held a spirit of offense at the Methodist leaders who, even though he was effective as a preacher and as an organizer, would restrain him in his ministry. He could have at any point been angry and said, I'm not going to do this anymore. But because he had a higher goal, God's glory and God's advancement of his kingdom He set aside the offense and did what was in front of him. Why did he do this? What drove him? I found a hymn this week that was written by Alan, and I want to share a few lines with you. It's called The Shouting Hymn, and I found it recently in my, in my hymnal, and it was interesting. It says that it's written by Richard Allen. There's a little bit of a debate over whether or not uh, this was exactly written by Richard Allen or not, but we know for sure that it was in his uh, hymnal that he carried around with him. And so this is how it goes, the shouting hymn. Oh God, my heart with love and flame. That I may in thy holy name, aloud in songs of praise, rejoice while I have breath to raise my voice. Then will I shout, then will I sing, and make the heavenly arches ring. What he's saying is, he's gonna praise God so much that the very roof of heaven will shake. He says, I'll sing and shout forevermore on that eternal happy shore and then another verse then you below and i above will sing and shout the god we love until that great and awful day when christ shall call our slumbering clay what he's talking about is when he's dead and in the ground christ will call the slumbering clay then he goes on, Then from our dusty beds we'll spring and shout, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? We'll shout to all eternity. And so Richard Allen was able to be meek and endure the hardships and the offenses of life because he had a higher vision of his true inheritance in Christ Jesus. And his true inheritance is that he would inherit the earth. And inheriting the earth means the new heaven and the new earth. Because one day, all of the work, all of the effort, all of the energy will be worth it because of God's glory and God's redemption of all creation, so Alan had a spirit of meekness, and so I want us to consider three application points, and the first is this: the first is that if we were to have meekness, the meekness of Christ, we need to forgive those who have wronged us, and move on. The spirit of offense leads to broken relationships. And it's like a a blockage in a pipe. Nothing can flow through it. Where there is the spirit of offense, the relationship gets broken, and growth can't happen in the relationship because there's a block there. Meekness says, I will forgive the wrong that was done to me it doesn't mean that the wrong wasn't really there. It doesn't mean that the wrong didn't happen or that it was sinful that it happened. But what it says is, because I have been forgiven so much, I also will choose to forgive those who have sinned against me. Forgiveness releases the other person It releases them in love. It releases them from a desire of retribution, from a desire to get back. It frees up the block and the pipe and enables the relationship to flow again. And so, as we think about meekness, we need to think about am I holding on to an offense? from someone else. And this offense could have been this morning between a a husband and a wife or it could be some offense that you're holding on to from years and years and years ago. But meekness, the meekness of Christ, the meekness that inherits the earth releases the other From the offense. It holds the offense no more. Why? For the sake of God's glory, for the sake of God's kingdom. So that's the first application. Forgive those who have wronged you. Take stock, make a list. Release the other person, release yourself from holding on to that offense. Embrace the meekness of Christ. And then the second action item is this. We want to avoid any resentment directed toward God for hardship in our lives. We want to avoid any resentment directed toward God for hardship in our lives. At any point, Richard Allen could have looked at God and said, "God, why did you do this to me? Why did I have these obstacles in my life when so many others did not?" And I remember, um, as a seminary student, you know, seminary was was a found was a foundational time in my life. It was a wonderful time in my life, but it was not inexpensive. And I didn't get a ton of scholarships i got a, I got a few small scholarships and it was helpful um, but I had friends that man they would get that seemed like they could write an email and all of a sudden they would get their whole tuition paid and I'd look at that and I would go god what's what's going on did I not write the right email or or what happened there and yeah, I think at times there uh, there was a bit of a spirit of offense there. But when I thought about it, I was like, well, but look what an opportunity I have. There are so many people around the world who who would love to have an opportunity to serve and to, to study at a seminary like like I did. But do you see that there could have been uh, a, a spirit of offense there? And so as we look at God, there may be resentment in our heart to what what God is doing in our lives. Why is this person promoted or more successful or why did they not have to face the challenge that I had to face? And if we're not careful, we can look at God and go, it's not fair. And we can have a spirit of offense. So I think meekness is a releasing even of God, from this idea of offense. It's that we walk into a place of saying, God, you are good. And even if bad things should happen to me and not to someone else, or if something unfair should happen in my life, I'm going to trust in your ultimate goodness, God. This is meekness. And so perhaps... As we think about our own lives, we need to think about what does it mean to release God? What does it mean to to release our a sense of uh, being offended at God and how maybe our lives turned turned out so as you think about your life, confess anything where you've you felt hurt by God because of something that wasn't fair in your eyes. And let the good and gracious God, um, let him be Lord of all of your life. He is um, he's a good God. And we can trust him in every circumstance. But we want to release that, that offense in our hearts. And then finally, we want to work towards our inheritance. And I was thinking about uh, Stacy's message last week about, and she was talking about sowing for a great awakening. And when farmers sow, it's not a fast process. You don't plant seeds and, and get a harvest on the same day. No, you plant seeds and you water and you give fertilizer and you, and you weed. And you work toward the goal of a harvest. And so as we think about the meek inheriting the earth, there is this, this work that we're called to do. There is this patient work that we're car- called to do. And it's kind of like farming. It's, it's this toil. And it's this work that we're devoted to that the fruit may not be seen right away but yet we work towards an inheritance that is surely coming when god makes a new heaven and a new earth when we have the resurrection when we can say where o oh, death is your sting and so as we think about the work that we're committed to the labor that we're committed to does our work does our do the interests that we have Does it serve the purpose of God's kingdom? Will it be there when it's time for the harvest? Will it matter when we receive our inheritance? And so let's commit ourselves to working in meekness for God's glory, for an inheritance that will truly last. Amen.